Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. feels really great to be able to say, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. Um, we're in a study called Believe, as you can see behind me, Believe 879. If you've, if you've been here for the, never been here before, this is the first time, I'll explain. There's 879 verses in the Gospel of John, and the mega theme is that when you read it, you'll believe that Jesus is who he said he is. That's the theme, that's the reason John wrote it. So those 879 verses are what we do here right now on Sunday morning and will be for some time. We're in John chapter 5, so let's turn our Bibles to that chapter. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, our hearts, our time, our bodies are yours. We place them before you as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, as Paul wrote, which is our reasonable service. It's the smartest thing we could ever do. We pray that during the next few minutes that we're together considering this passage, that our, our lives would be drawn closer to your plan and purpose, that we would fall in love, indeed worship and adore the Lord Jesus Christ in a very new and fresh way as we discover maybe for the first time, exactly who He is. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. It can be safely said that no person ever divided time except one person, and that's Jesus Christ. He literally divided time so that when we write down the date, we are making reference to His coming the first time on this earth. We talk about B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. And that's how we have divided time according to Christ. Now, not everybody buys into that. The first time I went overseas to Israel and I saw that uh, they changed it in more recent history to B.C.E., which means before the Christian era. Now it's called before the common era. And then anything A.D. is C.E. or Common Era. doesn't matter what you call it, however. The point still exists that that one person divided time and that no check is valid, no document is considered legal unless someone puts a date on it and in effect bearing witness and testimony to that fact that that single person divided time. Jesus Christ. Jesus is so important that the Encyclopedia Britannica devoted 20,000 words to a single article about Jesus Christ. You should know that that's more words than what they wrote about Aristotle, Alexander the Great, Buddha, Caesar, Cicero, Confucius, and the Islamic prophet Muhammad put together. 20,000 words. Through the centuries, scholars, skeptics have debated and wondered, well, who is Christ exactly? Who really is Jesus? And that really is the central question. In fact, I would say that is the most important issue on earth, if I can be so bold. I don't think the most important question a person can ask is, who am I? 
though we're fond of asking that question, I think the most important is, who am I in relationship to who He is? And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Now, if you were raised in a Christian church, you know that Christ is central to everything, and He is the ultimate answer to all of our issues and all of our questions. You've grown up believing that. There was a Sunday school class, and the teacher was talking about Noah's Ark, and she wanted to be very creative and get the students to interact. And so the teacher said to the class, I will describe something, and let's see if you can guess what it is. And so she began. First, I'm furry, I have a bushy tail, and I like to climb trees. And she waited. Nothing. Blank stares. They were catatonic. So she continued. I also like to eat nuts, especially acorns. Again, dead silence. She continued, I'm usually brown or gray, but sometimes I can be black or even red. Nothing, once again. Now the teacher is desperate, and she turns to a perky four-year-old who usually came up with answers and said, Michelle, what do you think? Michelle looked around the room at the other students very hesitatingly and said to the teacher, Well, I know the answer has to be Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. (laughs) Now, I've discovered something. This is just my, my personal discovery. If there's one issue the world consistently gets wrong... It's the identity of Jesus Christ. They get it wrong every year. Every time there's a news article at Easter or Christmas time or a new special documentary on the real historical Jesus, they get it wrong inevitably and invariably. Always. And that's nothing new. Ever since he was alive on the earth the first time, they got it wrong. For example, in John chapter 7... Some said he was a good man. Others in the crowd said he was a deceiver. In Matthew 16, the disciples announced to Jesus that some people thought he was John the Baptist, resurrected from the dead. Others said he was the prophet Elijah. Others said he was Jeremiah or another one of the prophets. In John chapter 6, after a miraculous lunch break that Jesus provided for them, they wanted to make him a king, an earthly king by force. That's what they thought he was, a politician. Luke chapter 23, they called him a tax evader and one who subverts the Roman government. John chapter 10, some people said he was demon-possessed. In Mark chapter 3, even his own family tried to rescue him. And here's their words, his own family. He's out of his mind. Now, all of those are wrong assessments of Christ. Traditionally, the Jewish people have regarded Jesus as an illegitimate child. That's what the Talmud says of Jesus, that he was the illegitimate son of Mary, whom they fancy was a hairdresser. I don't know where they got that idea. Islam regards and reveres Jesus as a prophet. Others have called him an ascended master. Strauss, the German rationalist, said he was the highest model of all religion. Napoleon Bonaparte said whoever he was, he was more than a man. There was even a film 40 years ago in the 60s that said Jesus Christ was a superstar. 
all of those assessments consistently are wrong about the identity of Christ. Now, let's recap before we get into that. And by the way, we're going to get into what Jesus says about himself in a very shocking paragraph that will shock his own audience. But here's the recap, because we've been away for a few weeks. Jesus, in John chapter 5, attends a festival at Jerusalem, probably the Passover. He happens to go down to a pool called the Pool of Bethesda. And some of you were there at the Pool of Bethesda about a week and a half ago. Well, at that time, there were hundreds of people who were sick, diseased. The King James calls them impotent folk, that is, helpless. There was one man who had a disease for 38 years. He caught Jesus' eye, and Jesus walked up to the man who had a disease for 38 years and healed him. So it's the story of the impotent man who meets the omnipotent man. And that one man's life will never be the same. It was the greatest day in his life when Jesus healed him. But it happened to be the Sabbath day. And that is where all the controversy happened. Because though the law of God did not prohibit doing good on the Sabbath day, By this time, man-made rules and regulations had been added to God's law so that Jesus evidently broke one of their rules regarding the Sabbath. And they're all upset, and they confront him. And in the confrontation, Jesus doesn't back down, but he reveals himself, and he speaks about four things, four things about the relationship that he, Jesus, has with God in heaven, whom he calls his Father. Four things about the relationship Jesus has with the Father, all that lead to the inevitable conclusion that he is claiming to be God. Well, let's begin by looking at verse 16, and uh, we're going to, by the way, read down to verse 24 today. But here's the first thing he says about the relationship with his Father, that both of them are working. They continue to work. The Father in heaven and the Son on earth continue to work no matter what day it is. Verse 16. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and they sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. That's a pretty violent reaction, right? Not they were just mad at him. Not they just rebuked him. They want to kill him. But Jesus answered them. Now listen to this and watch the reaction. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. That's called dropping the bombshell. They're already mad at him. He says something that makes them infinitely more mad at him and they will not be satisfied until two years later when they put him on a cross. Now, what they're so angry about is the way Jesus dares to talk about God in heaven as his own unique father. As his own unique father. Now, that's why it says in verse 18, you're calling him your father, making him, making yourself equal with God. Um, Every now and then, I pull out a translation that I share with you called the Weist translation, 
W-U-E-S-T. Kenneth Wiest was a Greek scholar, and he came up with a wonderful translation that expands the meaning of the text so it's unmistakable as to what it says. Here's the Wiest translation of verse 18. He was saying that God was his privately owned unique father, a father in a way in which no one else had him for a father, making himself equal with the deity. See, when Jesus called himself the Son of God, he didn't mean it in the Oprah Winfrey, Dr. Phil sense of the word, where God is everybody's father and we're all children of God. He meant it in the very narrow, unique sense when he referred to himself as one that has the very same nature as God himself. See, it's sort of like when my son was born 24 years ago. When Nathan was born, the day he was born, he had the nature of a man. He had a human nature. So Jesus is saying that he has the very nature, the divine nature of God himself. Did you know that verse 18 is one of the strongest verses in all of the Bible that attests to the deity of Jesus Christ and it's from the mouth of his own enemies? They knew exactly what he was saying he was. And this isn't the first time they will make this remark. In John chapter 10, they'll say, Why is it that you being a man are constantly making yourself out to be God? I find this fascinating because the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormon Church, Oneness Pentecostals will all deny that Jesus ever claimed to be God. And that baffles me because even his own enemies knew that he claimed to be God. That was their testimony. Now I have a question for you this morning. Can any of you think of a single passage in the Bible, just a single passage, just one, where Jesus said anything remotely like this? Well, I I just want you to know that I'm really just another nice guy. That's all I am. I'm a model of religion. I'm here just to be a good example for people to follow. Did he ever say anything like that? Never once. Well, what did he say about himself? Well, he said a lot of things about himself. Here's a sampling. To the Samaritan woman, remember what he said? Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. To the crowds in John chapter 6, he said, I am the bread of life. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. To the leaders in John chapter 8, he will say, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness. He said also in that chapter, I am from above. I am not from this world. And if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. He also said in that chapter, before Abraham was born, I existed. John chapter 11, he will say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. John chapter 14, the famous one, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in that chapter, when Philip, the disciple, finally says, look, Jesus, just show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. Jesus said, Philip, If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So tally all what I just set up. What Jesus claimed is that he was the quencher of thirst. He was the satisfier of hunger. He is the light of the world. He comes from heaven. He predated the existence of Abraham. He's the door of salvation and the exact representation of God the Father. Do you see any room in there where he said, I'm just another nice guy? 
No. Here is the, here's the bottom line I want to get to. Here's the inescapable reality. Jesus claimed to be the eternal God in a human body over and over and over and over again. That's the whole theme of the Gospel of John. He did it all the time, unmistakably. So if anyone denies that Jesus claimed that, they are denying the historical accuracy of the Gospel record. And they are setting themselves up as the better, higher source of truth than the biblical record. And what they are in effect saying is that they know much more about what happened 2,000 years ago than even the eyewitnesses themselves. And if anybody says that to you, the onus is on them to prove what they just said. And they'll have a difficult time. Listen to the words of William Lane Craig, one of the greatest apologists in modern history. Within 20 years of the crucifixion, a full-blown Christology proclaiming Jesus as God incarnate already existed. How does one explain this worship by monotheistic Jews of one of their own countrymen as being God incarnate, apart from the claims of Jesus himself? If Jesus never made any such claims, then the belief of the earliest Christians in this regard becomes inexplicable. Now, what point is Jesus making to these guys when they're saying, it's the Sabbath day? The big point, I want to apply this to us. Well, God the Father doesn't take the day off, and neither do I. He has been working up until now, and I do too. You know that God never takes a Sabbath? He doesn't take the Sabbath. The Sabbath wasn't made for God. It was made for man, Jesus said. Now, some of you who know your Bibles will say, now, Skip, wait a minute. It says in Genesis that God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, God rested. But why did he rest? He rested not because he was pooped. He didn't say, man, those elephants really took it out of me. (laughs) He rested because he was done. He was done as creator. His work of being creator was finished on that day, and so as to set a pattern for man's rest... He stopped, but he continued to work as he does today. He didn't take the day off. He sustains the universe. He pours out love and mercy and rules and runs the universe. And that means he's ruling and running your life. Here's the point. Even when you're resting, God is working. The Bible says in Psalm 121, He who keeps Israel never slumbers nor sleeps. He's always working. He's always busy. While you're resting, he's always working. So here's the question. Why don't we rest more and let him do his work? Why do we get into this thing as, well, it's a good day to worry a lot more than I've worried before. Yeah, I really have to worry about this because maybe God has taken a vacation today. He never does. He doesn't say, well, it's Sabbath today. I'm sorry. I would hear your prayers, but I'm taking a break. He's always working, always caring for you, never slumbers, never sleeps. That's number one. The Father and the Son are working, continually working. Number two, he says about his Father and the Son, the Father and the Son together perform wonders because the man that was just healed was something that was done by both the Father and the Son. Watch this, verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, now they're all upset. He said to them, Most assuredly, he'll say that twice in the passage, 
it's a Greek construct. Amen, amen. Verily, verily. We would translate it this way. Okay, guys, listen up very carefully. I'm going to say something that's really heavy, really solemn. That's the idea. Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself but what He sees the Father do. For whatever He does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does, and He will show Him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. See, what Jesus wants them to recognize, they're all bent out of shape, that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. What He wants them to know is this. What I just did in healing this man, I I didn't do independently. It wasn't some independent act of compassion where I just saw somebody and I had to do it. It was something that was part of the will of my Father and we did it in harmony and in tandem together. He wants them to know that out of deep love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father, that they work together so that what the Father is doing in heaven, the Son is cooperating and doing on earth. And, by the way, he says to them, there's more to come. There's greater works that you may marvel. You think that was cool, me healing this dude. You ain't seen nothing yet. I've just scratched the surface. He's going to do two things, he mentions. Resurrections from the dead and judgment of the world. And very soon after this, there will be three people the Bible records that Jesus will resurrect. By the way, 37 miracles are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's just what's recorded. John said he did a lot more, but I didn't record them all because I recorded enough for us to believe. 37 miracles recorded. Three recorded miracles were resurrections from the dead. One of them was Lazarus, John chapter 11. He'd been dead three days. He wasn't mostly dead. He was all dead. In fact, his sister said, by now he stinketh. Don't you love that? That's the King James. By now he stinketh. Yeah, you betcha, there's a corruption that is set in. Jesus raised him up. The second was the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum up in Galilee. And the third was the son of a widow from Nain, a village right outside of Nazareth. Raised him from the dead. And then a few years after that, he would resurrect himself in correspondence with the father. He said, no man takes my life, I lay it down and I raise it up. So what you just saw me perform in healing this man is just the beginning. I'm going to raise people from the dead, I'm going to raise from the dead, and one day I'm going to judge the entire world. He's committed all judgment, he said, to the Son. Now when Jesus said he gives life to people, I take this in a dual meaning. I can't prove this exactly, but this is just Heitzig here, but I I see it in a dual meaning. He gives life physically as creator. He can raise people from the dead, physically giving them resurrected life, but also spiritually because that term is often used interchangeably. He gives everlasting life. We'll see by the end of this passage that he gives everlasting life to anyone who believes in him. And I would say this. You haven't really lived until you met Jesus. I saw a bumper sticker on a beat-up old car. This is years ago. 
I mean, this was, I was single then, so that was like decades ago. And uh, I'll never forget it because this, um, the car was really beat up. I mean, really messed up, you know, smashed in. And the couple that got out were a couple of young hippies, and they were obviously very poor, but they had big smiles on their faces and a bumper sticker on their car that read, Without Jesus, you ain't living. Doesn't matter what car you drive or how much money you have. Here we are in this beat up old jalopy and we're living because he has given us life. So if we were to sum up what we just read so far, it's simply this. Jesus is telling them, if you want to know what God is like, just look at me. If you've seen me, he will say to Philip, you've seen the Father. You know how profound that is? If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. So when you see Jesus having compassion over a crowd of people, you're seeing the heart of God having compassion, wanting to restore people who've been broken and bruised by life. When you see Jesus reaching out and healing someone who is physically broken or needs a physical touch like this man, you're seeing the heart of God who is disturbed at seeing physical suffering upon the earth and is restless in the face of it. When you see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, you're seeing the very heart of God who's weeping over a world that has rejected him, knowing the pain and the anguish that it will cause them. Now, what does that mean to us? This is sort of all theological, the person and nature of Christ. What does it mean to us? Here's what it means personally to you and I. When you pray to God, you're not just praying to a God who's been stuck up in heaven in an ivory tower who kind of peeks down on the earth and sees you in pain and says, oh, I'm so sorry that you're feeling that way today. But of course, I wouldn't know what that's like. I'm up in heaven. This is a real nice place, by the way. One day you'll come here. No, you have a God who stepped out of heaven, embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, so that when you talk to him, you're dealing with somebody who knows all about the pain of humanity, all about the pain and suffering of earth, but has all of the resources of heaven. That's very different, and that sets believing in Jesus apart from believing in anyone or anything else. Very strong, powerful statements. Here's the third. Again, he's following this theme, the Father and the Son, the Father and the Son, like Father, like Son. Because all of this is true, the third statement is true, both the Father and the Son deserve worship. Verse 23, Jesus said, that all, that means that all men, all people, panta is the Greek word, it's inclusive of every single human, every person, should honor the Son, and that's in the present active subjunctive, means to continually honor, don't stop honoring, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Okay, now stop. Think about that statement. If everything Jesus said up till now is true, then this makes perfect sense, right? If Jesus is indeed on the same nature level as the Father, if everything God the Father and the Son, Jesus, do are in concert and harmony together, if Jesus is indeed God, then he deserves worship. And that's what he's saying. It's unmistakable what he is saying. By the way, this isn't the only time he said it. If you're thinking, well, maybe this is sort of an ambiguous text and Jesus really, you know, he said it before and after. 
Later on, when he raises from the dead and he stands in the upper room with Thomas, who, remember what Thomas said, unless I can put my hands in his side and touch those wounds, I won't believe there's a resurrection. So Jesus shows up one day. Hi, Thomas. Remember the other day when you said that unless you touch the wounds, my wounds, and you just said that to these guys, you didn't think I was there. I was here. I heard it all. Here, touch. See that it's me. Remember what Thomas said to him? He said, my Lord and my God. Now, did Jesus say, no, no, I'm not. He absolutely stood there and accepted and received what was rightfully his, and that is his honor as being Thomas's Lord and God. Here's another one. Jesus is leaving the temple and the children of the area start shouting out, as kids do. They often have more insight than adults. And they shouted, Hosanna, which means save us now, Lord. Hosanna to the Son of David, glory in the highest. And the leaders got all upset at what the children were saying. And here's Jesus' response to them. He said, don't you ever read your Bibles? Have you never read? Out of the mouth of children, you have ordained or perfected praise. He's saying, no, what they just said was perfect because I am who I always said that I am, and that is God. D.A. Carson, in commenting on this passage, said, such a statement belongs either to one who is God or else one who is insane. Anybody who says, oh, by the way, you need to honor me just like you honor God the Father is either a nutcase or he's God. So let's, uh, let's suppose that John was wrong. Let's suppose Jesus never said that. That's what a lot of skeptics like to say. Well, Jesus never claimed that, but his disciples got all into this and they wrote it down. Well, if that's true, then you can't believe anything John wrote in this book. You might as well throw it out. It's untrustworthy because he's an untrustworthy witness. That means also 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation, scrap those from your Bible because you can't rely on those. But let's say Jesus said what John said that he said, and he recorded it accurately, and it's trustworthy. Let's say Jesus isn't who he said he is. That means he's a liar. And then what are we doing here? Following somebody who's a megalomaniac or a liar. Or else, the third option He is indeed God, and he said what was true, and this bent those guys all out of shape. That's the best option. Now, here's the point here. The Jews thought they were worshiping God while they were rejecting Jesus. By the way, they still do. They think they're worshiping God, but they reject Jesus. And this brings up and really answers a very sensitive question that some of us have dealt with. And the question is this, what about all of those sincere people who are very sincere and they're spiritual and they believe in God, but they reject Christ? I don't really have to answer it. Jesus already did that all should honor the Son as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent me. Question, what did they accuse Jesus of when he said he was God? Blasphemy. They say, you're blaspheming. And if if he was a man who made these statements, he would indeed be blaspheming. But what he is saying is, I'm not blaspheming, you're blaspheming. Because if I'm God 
and you don't honor me like you honor God, and God wants you to honor me like you honor the Father, then you're the one who's guilty of blasphemy, not me. It's a very powerful, powerful statement. And either Jesus is who he said he was or he is insane. It's very popular today to talk about God, spirituality. I'm a spiritual person. I have people tell me, I'm a spiritual person. I go, great. What's the spirit you believe in? Well, you know, I believe in the man upstairs. The great spirit. The architect of the universe. The ground of all being. Wonderful, I say. What do you think about Jesus? Well, you know, I may not believe in Jesus the same way you believe. Okay, well, if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. I sat next to a man on the way to Israel this time. Had a wonderful conversation. He was a Jewish man from Israel, immigrated to New York 20 years ago. He had a painting business, and he was this gregarious guy. We struck up a wonderful conversation, in fact, a friendship. We exchanged email addresses. And um, when he found out what I did, because he asked me, well, what do you do? I said, I'm a minister. I'm taking a group of people to Israel. The conversation suddenly shifted. Now he wants to talk about God, which I was, believe me, I wanted to go there. So he's talking about God and God and God here and God kept the Jews and God. And he was right on. And uh, it's interesting, a couple seats in front of me was Kay Arthur. She's an author. And she said, Skip, the whole time I was praying for you when you were talking to this guy. (laughs) So um, he found out that I wrote books, that I was an author. And he goes, oh, I'd love to read one of your books. And I said, great, because I'll send you one. Trust me. And then he realized what he was asking. He goes, um, send me one of your books, but, but not one that speaks too much about Jesus Christ. I said, well, I don't got one of those books. I'll send you what I got. It's not up to you to honor one or the other. If you don't honor both, you don't honor God. And why is that? Because God the Father himself is the one who exalted Jesus. Paul writes in Philippians 2, God raised him up to the heights of heaven and gave him a name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven or on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what Paul is saying? You're either going to bow now or later, but you will bow. You will bow now voluntarily or you will bow then in judgment but you will acknowledge that he is who he said and who the Father said he is. Now, here's the personal question. If he is who he said he is, is he supreme in your life? Do you honor the Son? You go, how do I do that, Skip? How, How can I honor the Son? The first way you can honor the Son is to receive him as the Savior of your sins. And the second way is to please Him on an ongoing basis as God and Lord in your life. Those are the ways He can be honored by His people. Here's the fourth and final statement, and we have to close. There's more to be said, but not time to say it. Verse 24, Jesus says, The Father and the Son, because of who they are in tandem, will determine your welfare, your eternal welfare. Verse 24, most assuredly, there it is again, amen, amen, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, present tense, everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. 
I read a simple statement years ago. I think this was on a bumper sticker as well, so now you know where I get my theology. <laughs> it, it said two sentences. No Jesus, K-N-O-W. No Jesus, no peace. And underneath it, it said no Jesus, N-O. No Jesus, no peace. If you know Jesus, then you'll know peace. If you say no Jesus, no peace. And you could translate a little bit differently that same idea here. No Jesus, if you know Jesus, you'll know life. If you say no Jesus, there's no life. He says... He who hears my words and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. Everlasting life is as simple as believing, trusting, relying on what Jesus said about God, about himself. And he claims here and elsewhere to be the one who controls by whatever choices you make your eternal destiny. Again, John chapter 8, Jesus speaking, If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. There are some conversations I wish I could have been at when they went down. This is one of them. I would love to have watched the body language of the Jewish leaders as Jesus stepped up to the plate and said what he said. What was their response? We're told twice they sought to kill him. They will put him on a cross, and they will be so happy when they do. In other words, they're saying, we don't want this Messiah. We don't want this kind of person who claims this. We don't want this kind of Jesus. I wonder if that's your response. I wonder if your response is something like, I don't want this Jesus ruling over my life. I want my own space. Or if you will say, I want this Jesus to rule over my life and I will surrender to him. You say, well, Skip, aren't there more choices than that? You're just being very narrow-minded here and saying there's only two choices. You know why? Because there's only two choices. Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said, you're either for me or you are against me. That's what he said. There's no neutral ground. There's no in-between say, well, I'm undecided. Well, if, if you mean by I'm undecided, I really want to know and I'm working daily to resolve that issue, that's one thing. But that's probably not what you mean. What most people mean, it's a smokescreen to say, I've already decided, but it's just a lot more convenient to say, I'm agnostic. I'm undecided. You are To be undecided is to have decided. You don't want him. So once again, Jesus radically, he was a radical, forces us down to make a decision about his claims. And as one person put it, one of the reasons people find it hard to be obedient to the commands of Jesus Christ is that they are uncomfortable taking commands from a stranger. If he's Lord and God in your life, taking his commands will be done out of sheer love and joy. But if he's a stranger to you, It'll just become routine religion. Over 30 years ago, there was a 17-year-old boy who was told about Jesus Christ personally. And that 17-year-old boy reacted and said, What are you telling me about church and religion? I've heard that stuff all my life. That boy's name was Skip Heitzig. 
I had been to church all my life. I had heard all the stories. And I was an unsaved churchgoer. And then one afternoon, watching an evangelist on television, for the first time I heard the gospel explained to me in such a very unique and compelling and straightforward way that I simply prayed, I simply believed and trusted Jesus. And everything changed after that. And I'm here years later to say, it works. He still keeps his word. He has spoken life and I'm still alive in a very unique sense. And I would say like the bumper sticker, sorry, there it is again. Without Jesus, you ain't living. Bad English, great theology. Without Jesus, you ain't living. My guilt was removed. Guilt was gone. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this very unique individual, Jesus Christ, very different than the Sunday school Jesus some of us have been raised to believe, the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, the pablum Jesus. This is a radical one who makes it unmistakably known who he was even though he knew it would cost him his life because after all, that is the very reason he came, to die and to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin so that anybody who believes in him because of his work on the cross could be saved once for all. What a great deal. What good news. Now, Lord, everybody in the hearing of my voice has heard it. And now we're all responsible for it. I pray that the choice would be yes to Jesus and no to ruling over their own lives. But yes, a resounding yes to Jesus saving and ruling and reigning over every life here this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.